I think what I'd like to do as we start to talk about this, John, I, I, I wonder whether or not some of the things that you've shared are new thoughts. And I wonder whether the place to begin to discuss what you've talked about is the, the issue of what motivates God. Because I wonder whether or not many of us need to be reintroduced to the God of the Bible, mm -hmm. having believed that what motivates God ultimately is our well-being as we perceive it to be. Yeah. But I think you already alluded to something quite different than that. Yeah, as we perceive it to be is the problem with saying it that way. The thing that I have, the thing that I have been devoting the last 30 or 35 years to understanding, I hope, is that two things that are plain in the Bible and one of them plain in my soul uh, are not at odds. One is God manifestly throughout the Bible is driven by the impulse to display his own glory. Ephesians 1.6 is where I camped tonight, but it's all over the Bible. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. But back in Psalm 23, just, just to pick a random, uh, a random text, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Say the next phrase. Really? You see, those are all over the Bible. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He does that. Or the heavens are telling the glory of God. How did that get set up? Who set up the heavens that way? God did. So God is totally into God. Now, that's one side of the story. And it, it offends people. It discourages people. It, it makes them feel like God's not loving. He's a megalomaniac. He's an egomaniac. Um, and so the other side of the story is he loves us. And you have to interpret his love in view of the whole thing. You can't, like you said, his love must mean that he gives me what I feel like I need. Well, that, that may not be what you need. Little children don't know what they need. Loving parents don't give little children what they think they need. They give them what they need, not what they think they need. Love, that's, and that's the way God is. And what we need is God, right? We don't think we need God. No, nobody on the streets in Vancouver, apart from new birth, thinks he or she needs God more than anything. So you have to be taught to, to wake up. What you need is God. You, you were designed to be satisfied by God, I, by a fellowship with God and enjoyment of his beauty and admiration of God and a being transformed by God. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And I want to be different. I don't like the old John Piper. I really don't like me. You like you? I just get so sick of me. I am, I am so eager for that day. And progressively, progressively, we, we're on our way. And God loves us enough to, 
hammer on us until we wake up to the fact you're made for God. And then when we find our treasure in him, then my delight in him and his being glorified in me become one. And that, that's what I've been trying to say for all these years. It's every message I've preached, source, same thing, is that uh, God is... My answer to your question is what motivates God is uh, making much of himself, especially through our exquisite enjoyment of him. Because you connected this with the, with the suffering in the world, and put the cross at the center of God making much of himself. John, if I said that the reason I pastored this church is because I wanted to make much of myself, I would, that would be blasphemous. So why is it terrible for me to do that, but why is it so great for God to do that? Because if you succeed, you ruin everybody. (laughs) In other words, if, 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 you, if I came to make much of myself here or you got up on Sunday and said, now my goal in this sermon is to make sure that every one of you leaves this room praising me and thrilled maximally with John Neufeld's qualities. If, if you succeeded at that, you would destroy them. If God succeeds at that, he brings them infinite joy that nobody can take away. Only one person can have this motive. God. If anybody else has the motive to make much of himself, they are cruel. If God has any other motive, he's cruel. Because God is the the infinite satisfaction of the human soul. If God diminishes God, if God downplays God, if God commends something better than God, then God would be cruel to you. But if you commend anything but God, you're cruel. In other words, when, when, when Satan came to... Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and said, uh, look, don't you realize that you could be like God? They were tempting them to do what you suggest you might do on Sunday morning. You You can get this for yourself. You don't need to be dependent like a little child or like a mirror. You can get it for yourself. You can shine. You don't have to reflect. And And they bought it. And destroyed themselves and everybody else in the process. Because God, they should have said, I'm already like God. You can be like God. I'm already like God in all the ways I should be. Namely, I'm a reflector of God. I reflect back his glory by enjoying my father, my friend. He's all I need. I don't need you and I don't need independence. I have God. And so, uh, God is not a megalomaniac. When he makes much of himself, we would be megalomaniacs if we make much of ourselves, because we would be unloving, and that's what is infinitely loving for God to do, because when he draws your attention to himself, it's like inviting you to a fountain, to a feast, to an art display. He is the ultimately satisfying reality in the universe. John, I'm sure that when we finally, you know, in a in a a whatever way we can, begin to grasp that truth. I think the ground shifts at that point in time. I think it's only then that we're ready to see that God puts suffering into the world to display his glory in the cross. Because I'm sure that until I see that, I will always find myself fighting against suffering. That's so true. uh, 
there is a, a deep subterranean tectonic soul plate that's got to happen in a human being before what I said tonight can go home. And, and the, the, the fundamental difference is how precious to you is the supremacy of God in all things. How precious to you is the absolute greatness, authority, sovereignty, holiness, beauty of God. Absolute. Everything else is subordinate. All human beings. What does Isaiah say? The nations are like a drop in a bucket. The question is, does that offend you? Here's God in the scales... And here's all the nations. goes like that. This is like dust, he says. It's like dust in the scales. Until God weighs on us with that kind of right and authority and majesty. I mean, you, you must say to yourselves over and over again, all the galaxies in the universe are God's handiwork, finger work. They're just finger work. He could put them out of existence just like that, and he would do them no wrong. No wrong. I mean, I, I just, I, I, wish, I wish I could. Why is it that even Christians get in God's face about their suffering? And I'm going to offend so many people. We don't have a right to get in God's face for anything. For anything. God can do you no wrong if he tortures you every day for the rest of eternity. He does you no wrong. So you're having a good day right now because you're not in hell. And that's absolutely true. It's just absolutely true. And so you're so right that that until God just assumes in, in the constellation of our affections in our minds, a massive place that puts everything else infinitely, I use that word carefully, infinitely low, probably lots of the Bible is just going to make no sense at all. It's just... So let's, let's talk about, the. I think, the controversial thing that you said in terms of causing suffering. Right. Uh, sometimes I know that Reformed theologians talk about a will of decree yep. and a will of command. Yes. Um, so we, we, I think maybe we need some help with that because right. I think for anyone who's working with the way through this for the first time, right. the idea that God would cause uh, even the sin in the world yeah. so that he could exalt himself in the cross, we're, we're slowly getting there. But, yeah. you know, I, just when I think I've got that idea then I find myself straight up against God decreeing that which he despises. Right. And so I'll say again what I said earlier. You know, sometimes Reformed folks are criticized for being systematizers or logic-driven, and, and the other group, I won't even put a name on it, groups, are not. I'm 64 years old. I've never read fully Calvin's Institutes. I keep trying, and I find them really not nearly as good as Edwards, and so I give up. Um, I came to my theology through Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, not through systematic theology. 
Um, my experience is that the Bible reformed people are, are not the systematizers. They're the ones who believe all the verses and just try to figure out a way to say it. And it's, it's those who insist on the philosophical presupposition of autonomy or free will. If you define free will as ultimate uh, self-determination, which is the technical meaning, if you define it that way, there isn't any such a thing in the Bible. You can't find one verse that teaches ultimate self-determination. All you can find is verses that seem to imply that if you bring that assumption, like whosoever will may come. Isn't that free will? No. <laughs> Why do they will to come? Why? Um, so that's the foundation. I want to be, I don't, I don't give a rip what name you put on my theology. I just want to believe all the verses and think long enough about them so that I'm faithful to them and, and say them. And I have some people in some terms say, hey, you're going to get in trouble with that Arminian theology. And others will hear sermons, you're going to get in trouble with that Calvinistic theology or whatever. I say, okay, that's fine, I, whatever. I just want to say what's in the text. I want, it, I want to be faithful, properly understood. Now, you move up a level, and as you try to put verses together, because I don't think God is a God of confusion, one verse will say, thou shalt not kill. That's the will of command. And another verse says, the Lord killed the child, David's baby. The Lord killed him. Or it says in uh, Exodus 4.11, who makes man seeing or blind or deaf or, or, or whatever? The Lord does all that. The Lord gives life. The Lord puts to death. So God is killing and he says, thou shalt not kill. And God ordains that Joshua move in and clean house on all the Canaanites. So he's commanding that they kill. So he is ordaining uh, a killing so thou shalt not kill can't be uh, taken to make this a sin in God. And even if you define thou shalt not murder, God ordained the murder of the Son of God. So Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the peoples of Israel, and the Gentiles are gathered together to do what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So every driving of the nail was God's will. And it was sin. So, in fact, see if this helps. I, I mean, it won't help. It'll just, it'll just trap you. Um, I, I personally believe that if you reject the sovereignty of God over sin, in other words, if you don't have a category in your mind that God can will what he hates, you are going to eventually reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Because Hebrews 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. And he bruised him in one way only, through the sins of bruisers. So God willed Judas. He willed Pilate. He willed Herod. He willed the soldiers. He willed crucify him, crucify him. He willed the thorns. He willed the stripes. He willed the nails. He willed it all for you, for you. And if you say, God can't will that kind of sin, then, then there goes the cross. 
as an act of God-ordained love for you and, and a substitution for your, for your sins. So, so we invent these, these terms, will of command, thou shalt not murder, and will of decree, my, my son shall be murdered. You get that? Now, he used those terms. I'm happy with them. Jonathan Edwards used them. Theologians come up with terms just like the word trinity or others. You want to clarify that? No, I'm happy with what you said, and I think everyone else is too. I, I really do. I think we... I we, doubt that. Well, uh, but, but, okay, but, if, if we... But I want to take it to the next okay. level, and that is to say, let's take it on a personal level, because pastorally... Right. John, Absolutely. you and I are pastors, and, and, and pastorally... We yeah, talk about yeah. the, the sufferings by, that God inflicted on Christ, and then f- from that I extrapolate that God also inflicts sufferings willingly on me yeah. and on you yeah. and on all the God's people. Right. I think I've heard you say meet, we need to tell them that they will suffer. Yeah. And I find that when some individuals who are suffering, and you tell them that this was indeed the decree of God, it sets them free. They, they just begin to rejoice. They say, it's yeah. not random after all. The God who loves me has brought me through this because he is fulfilling the designs of his glory and my long-term good. They get that. And another person hears the very same thing, John, and they, it fills them with rage. Yeah. I mean, they say, if that's how it's going to be, yeah. I want nothing to do with this God. Yeah. And it's, can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, well, it's true, that's for sure. Timing is part of it, pastorally. Timing is part of it. You don't walk into a hospital room and, and, and say the hardest things to broken people who've just, there's an ashen, dead husband on the table. You don't, you don't say anything hard there. You just hug and cry. That's what you do, right? Everybody knows, I, mean, I hope you know this. You, the reason it's wonderful to be a pastor is that you get to teach long before that moment so that you don't need to say anything. They know what you think. You don't need to say it. They may have lots of questions, and they know the time will come when you'll sit down and help them answer the questions. But right now, we're just crying. So that's the first thing is, is timing is really important, and you, human feelings are, are, uh, are very, very important. Second thing is that issue of how central God is in our in our world and, and there are people for whom um, they're not there yet and frankly none of us is totally there right none of us is is totally where we need to be in our worship of, of the supreme God and therefore all of us it takes different forms for me it, it does not take the form of rebellion against God like where are you and why didn't you come through it's it's more like um, uh, pouting that a situation went wrong. And, and if you get to the bottom of this pouting, it's unbelief in, in the goodness of God, in his sovereignty over my life. So it, it has all kinds of forms, and none of us is where we need to, to be. Um, so uh, I think pastors should, over time, just constantly help people see that Though there are problems that come with the sovereignty of God over disability or over disease or over calamity. Take those three. If you surrender the sovereignty of God and opt for an alternative, like 
God's not in charge, or God dropped the ball, or God's not wise, or God's not good, the problems are so much worse. You take out out from under the people the very thing they need to stand on for the next 10 years of adjustment to the loss they just experienced. They, They think in order to rescue God from his guilt in taking the husband or the child They've got to take away his sovereignty, and in taking away his sovereignty, they take away the very rock that they're going to stand on when the waves keep breaking over them in the days to come when they need something to hold on to. And my experience is exactly yours, that that over time, more and more people at Bethlehem say to me in suffering, I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't taught us about the sovereignty of God in what we're going through. In the mid- I'll just give you a little, little advertisement here that has nothing to do with, with my books or anything. There's a woman in our church. She's, I think, in her early 20s now, and her name is Krista Horning. You can go to our website, Desiring God, and her book uh, called Just the Way I Am. Krista has a syndrome, and if you see her picture, I think she has no elbows. And her face was distorted. She's been through, what, 50 surgeries. And, and she's just golden, just golden young saint that has been through horror, as, as you know people like this. And, and she's publishing a book, middle of April, so in about a week or two, called just, and it's all built around children with disabilities in our church. And their pictures and their testimonies everywhere all built on the principle of God's absolute sovereignty over disability. It's the, the key text is Exodus 4.11, who made man's mouth, who made him blind or deaf or seeing, is it not I, the Lord? And th- in other words, there's a whole band of people at my church who live lives of tremendous heaviness and brokenness. I think of the lockers who wheel Michael in dressed to the T. We call him the president. And he's, what is he now? Ten? I forget. And, and Michael can't talk. He's got the mind of a six-month-old, I suppose, and he, he, he has continual seizures, and he's sitting at the back during worship. Sometimes he calls out, and our church is all over this, right? Just like you are here. We were talking about it. We're just all over this. The sovereignty of God, that is, he's good, he's wise, he knows what he's doing, and he's going to make those people completely able to relate to him in every way someday. That's good news. At least to, at least to that amazing group of people, that's good news. You're right, it will not be good news to everyone, but, but it, let's give them time. Everybody's in process, teaching, patience, loving Very good. Now, I'm going to take questions in just a second here. I need to ask one more so that we kind of bring this to a close because this is a pastor's conference. And I'm going to ask you, is it true that for pastors there is a measure of suffering that has been appointed simply as proclaimers of the gospel? Has, and if that's true, why is it that God has demanded that those proclaim the gospel also bear a measure of suffering that goes with that proclamation? I think it's true. I would base it on Second Corinthians 1, where the comfort with which we have received, we're going to comfort those who are in any difficulty. That's true for everybody, but it's especially true... Yeah, I want for... to be careful because I don't want to give the impression that somehow, you know, wow, you know, if I'm a pastor... 
I bear this heavy load and woe yeah. is me, that kind of thing. So, so I, I think it's by God's design that um, wounded shepherds uh, learn suffering so that they may be better shepherds. They, they are better shepherds in the seminary of suffering. Uh, I, I was, uh, what Luther said, one of the best hermeneutical helps to him is suffering from Psalm 119, verse 71. Uh, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your precepts. Um, And then, oh, I just lost. I had another another text to to justify that conviction that pastors uh, have a special... (laughs) It just went out of my head. But anyway, I think the answer is yes, that uh, God designs it. Satan hates us. We, if we drop the plate, more plate, drop the tray, more plates break. And so his opposition toward pastors, I think, is probably intensified. I think more demons are assigned toward us and more arrows fly toward us. And therefore, uh, we must fight more, more vigilantly. And uh, when, when the arrows land or when there is uh, attack or suffering, we should always think, this is going to be for the good of my people. This is going to be for the good of my people. At least that's been my experience. Well, I'm now going to start with some uh, questions that have come in. Uh, here's a question that says, in the context of extending the ministry of the suffering of Christ, how do you know, like Paul, when to flee in a basket and when to head to Jerusalem knowing what awaits you? I don't. <laughs> I don't because, and, and that's a, a, a very practical and urgent question, especially for missionaries in difficult places right now. So it's, and it's, it's a tough question for mission executives who have to make a call about whether to pull people out of Yemen, say, or, or Syria. Um, and, and what we have in the Bible is both. And maybe the best thing I could do is commend a book by John Bunyan, because Bunyan chose to be in jail for 12 years. He could have gotten out any time he wanted by signing a statement that said, I won't preach. And he had four, four children, and one of them was blind. Little Mary's blind. And, and he chose to stay in jail. He said, I don't know if he made the right decision. That's a tough call, right? He's got a wife. He's got kids. One of them's blind. And he's choosing to sit in jail when he could get out if he just didn't preach. And he says, can't do it. And he stays. But he wrote a book called Counsels for Sufferers. And there's a section in it precisely when to flee and when to stand, when to flee and when to stand. And he just reflects biblically on all the places where they stood and all the places where they fled. Because uh, there, there's nothing that says in the Bible, you must lose your life the first time it's threatened. That's not in the Bible. But many Christians have chosen to lose their life rather than flee or uh, lose their life rather than deny the Lord. So I do not know the answer to that. I, I, I hope that when I'm faced with something like that, I will be given a supernatural strength and supernatural discernment as to what's best all things considered. I think the question sometimes also takes root when we bring it to our own context. And many pastors are asking the question, they're severely being criticized. Yeah. Uh, they're struggling with the question of, is it time for me to stay or is it time for me to go? Right. And I think that's, I mean, I, many times I'll speak with pastors that will be at that dilemma, yep. not knowing yep. Yep. how to make that choice. Yep. Wisdom, right? Here, here's a story. My dad was an evangelist 
and uh, spoke in a thousand churches across uh, North America uh, till he passed away and held, there's a little mini Billy Graham, you know, had 500 person crusades instead of 50,000 people crusades. And, and he said to me one time, there's so many discouraged pastors and I find that so many of them leave just before the revival would have happened. I don't know how he knew that. <laughs> but, but his impression was that God might have been on the brink of something and, and, and the pastor just couldn't take it anymore. And I'm sure not going to criticize pastors who get beat up and decide to go to a, a pastor where they're a little more appreciated because I've been in that church. I've only been in one church in my life. And, and I've been so loved at that church that I, I've, not, I've not walked through so many of the battles that, that brothers go through. I do think as well, some of the things that you've been sharing, though, that uh, when a pastor goes through these, that he would not somehow believe that something strange or unusual is happening to him. Right. Um, I think that is, I know when I left seminary, nobody told me that. I think, I, I know I read that in the scripture, but somehow I had not yet internalized that. Yeah. And uh, it is, I think, something that we ought to keep in mind. Now I've got another question. Uh, how can pastors prepare the churches for suffering for Christ in the future? Christ should call us to suffer in the future. Yeah, yeah. Short answer, teach about suffering, just biblically, because you just alluded to the text in First Peter. First Peter would be a great place to start. Just teach through First Peter. Do an exposition of First Peter, and you get to chapter 4, verse 13. Think it not strange, brothers, when the fiery ordeal comes upon you. Teach your people suffering is normal. It's not strange not to suffer as strange for a Christian in the first century. So teach them. And, and, and the second thing, and the only other thing I think I would say is make the supreme value of Jesus prominent in your preaching. Because Paul said that uh, whether by life or by death, Christ will be magnified. So clearly, what was supreme to Paul was not staying alive and not dying, but rather Christ being magnified. And the only way that makes sense is if Christ is supremely valuable. So I would say a, a stream that should be running through all your preaching is he is supremely valuable. He is supremely valuable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And he went and he sold all that he had and bought that field. That's what everybody should feel about Jesus. I'm going to sell everything I have if I have to to have this field. If I lose everything and I get the treasure, I've got everything. Well, here's an illustration of that. Quick story. This is great. John, John uh, uh, wrote Amazing Grace. Newton. John Newton said... He was, a person who complains is like a man on his way to New York to inherit a million dollars. Now, this is 200 years ago, and he's on his way in a carriage. And he's on his way, and I don't know why he used New York, he's British. He's on his way to New York, and one mile outside of New York, the carriage breaks down and the wheel falls off. And he has to walk a whole mile to go get a million dollars for his inheritance. And the man all the way to New York says, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. He said, that, that's the Christian walking to heaven. <laughs> I, I was very convicted by that story. Yes. Uh, we'll, take, we'll, take, we'll take one more question. Very good. We'll take one more question. 
Um, how can we as a congregation offer practical support for our pastors? Yes, these people within the congregation who are concerned. So this obviously is a, is a congregation member. How can I offer, or we as a congregation, offer practical support to our pastors as they are suffering? That's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, Would that we all had parishioners who asked those vigilant. questions. We're vigilant, yeah. This, this simple and, and general answer is pray for them. Let's be more specific. Um, know your pastor. And it, I don't mean everybody can know him that well, but there should be a core of elders or friends or whoever around this man, half a dozen guys especially, but couples who know the couple, and they know him well, really well. No secrets. Doesn't have to be many, but some. The, the women know her know Noel deeply they know her deeply in all of her pain and all of her happiness she's there and, and they know me they know every temptation they know everything they just know so that that's really essential because how, how do you serve how do you care if you don't know if you suffer in utter aloneness nobody knows the phone calls I get nobody knows the emails I get nobody knows what we're going through as a couple nobody knows that's horrible so over time, cultivate that. Don't be afraid of that. Some, some guys really are afraid of vulnerability like that. And I have found anyway that at Bethlehem, uh, a culture of transparency in the church, especially in the leadership, a culture of trust and transparency takes a while. I mean, it may take a long time if you come into a very distrustful and, and suspicious and, and unhelpful and uncaring and dysfunctional church. You, you may have to build for 10 15 years before there is such a thing, but the goal is to be known. And then in that being known, to, to ha have people around you with the courage to, to tell you what you need and to give you what you need. And so um, I think that would be the, the core thing, and surround you with a lot of grace and a lot of mercy and, and care for you. That's the way I'm being cared for in my church right now. Um, Noel and I have... And our wider family and my schedule just got so out of hand that that I've asked the church. It's a good place to end for me to, you know, true confession. Because what I have to lose. Um, um, I've asked the church for eight-month leave of absence starting in May. And this is one of my last hurrahs. No Twitter, no blogging, no speaking, no preaching, no, no traveling, no books, writing, uh, no essays, no reports, no committees, nothing so that I can devote all my attention to my soul and my wife. And my elders, when they heard me yearn, ache, ask, uh, were kind of, whoa, that sounds serious and and we took two months back and forth, and a little committee was formed, meet with Noel and me, met with each other, met with a counselor to just talk that through. And then I preached on it two Sundays ago. You can go listen to the 14-minute excerpt from the sermon from two weeks ago about how I, I laid that before the church and how I tried to keep them from, you know, panicking, like, ooh, he's about to get a divorce or something like that, um, which I would 
I would worry about if I were them, I think, if, if my pastor started saying, I need to reconnect with my wife for eight months. Um, so um, my, what I'm illustrating in answer to the question is my, my elders uh, got on that big time. They didn't, they didn't just roll over and play dead. They didn't just say, of course. They, they didn't just say, no way. They, they just they really dug in. And, uh, and so we've been really, really candid with each other. And they've got plans, and they worked it through. And I personally think it'll be very good for the church, though it's kind of shaky and threatening to be away for eight months. Uh, but they, they loved us. They cared for us. And uh, I, I, all of you who are not pastors, I would just say, it, w- it would have been really terrible, I think, if there had not been a core group of guys who knew, knew this was coming. They knew it was coming. We were talking. They were close. Um, I just really, really... David and Karen Livingston, if you're watching David and Karen, thank you. Um, they know everything. There is nothing in our lives that they, they, don't, they don't know. And then it moves out to another core of about four couples, and then out to about 35 elders... And then out now to the congregation, and, and each knows a little more, and that's that's the safe way to do it. And when you've been to a place thirty years, you uh, you have enough friends and enough capital of affection that you feel safe. I really did. I felt very very safe. I didn't feel threatened. And so, to the people who asked that question, work with your pastor to cultivate a a really sweet culture of transparency and trust in the church. A lot of grace. Grace is deeper still. Oh, I, I hate to add anything. That seems like a note to end on. Please. But I, I feel in, in, as a result of what's been said to say also to pastors who just, I mean, there's a longing in their heart to have what you have. And they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps they don't have elders and work in a church council, right. and that council gets elected and reelected, and the uh, thing just washes over, and there never gets to be that kind of relationship mm-hmm. to garner. And as the years go by, they feel more deeply lonely. I was speaking to one person today who said, um, "I, you know, I asked for a sabbatical, and they basically laughed. Right? Yeah. We don't get one. Why should you have one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there is a longing in their souls, and there are going to be some of the brothers here who preach." who would long to have even one or two men they could walk with yeah. that way, but don't have it today, right. but don't have it today. And I think, you know, you and I would probably join together and say, um, even in that, God is sovereign in the middle of even that suffering. If you long for something, I wish I had a board like John Piper had, right. but I don't. Yeah. And to content oneself, as, as David says, David encouraged himself in the Lord when they talked about yeah. stoning yeah. him, to find courage even in that. And, and, I wish, I wish I could walk you through 30 years. We're n- it wasn't always like this. Yeah, yeah. There were 300 gray-haired people in this church in 1980. No, no young people at all. And all of them suspicious of me, except maybe five. <laughs> uh, thinking this young rascal's here using this church as a stepping stone to seminary. And, and uh, there wasn't a lot of trust and... We've been through horrific things together. 230 people left the church in 1993 when one of the staff members committed adultery and almost got myself fired because I preached a sermon called Missions and Masturbation. 
uh, uh, um, real sensitive. But, I mean, it, it, it hasn't always been this way. Um, I can understand why not. But but do do hang in there, and, and you know, we're pastors of large churches. It, I still go to meetings where I give talks to 30 people, and it is so good. You, you walk into a room, and you're hoping maybe several hundred, and there's 30 or 40 people, and, and it's just you just say to yourself, this is so right. This is so good. If I don't love these people and give my best for these people, I'm just a jerk feeding off the fame of thousands. That's just so godless, you know? Well, if I can't love this little flock here, so, God is good to us. He gives us what we need, the hard times and the good times. And, and frankly, I, I, I expect more hard times. I don't know what the future holds. Getting old won't be easy. Well, I think uh, we're going to close the evening down. I'm looking for Pastor Darrell, and if he could give me a nod whether or not there's one, anything that... Yes, he does have something to say. No, you don't. Very good. Well, let's just, uh, let's close the evening with a word of prayer and uh, let's commit our, our evening to the Lord. Father, we are, we have been in this place and we have delighted in the word of God. And if there's nothing else that we've heard, Lord, we, we pray that we would find the Father and the Son delightful. And Father, I pray that you would uh, give us the grace to find our moment-by-moment -moment pleasure in you. Father, I pray that this grace would be given to everyone in this room. And, Father, we know that you have, within your sovereign designs, meticulously planned our future. And we thank you for it. Father, we do not know what is to come, but in advance already, we thank you for you are a God of love, and you are a God who has delighted to make us yours. And in that, we would be grateful. Father, I pray that we would not be as the one who complained in the last mile to New York, but, Father, we would run with joy in our hearts. So, Father, whatever circumstances we find ourselves, may we be content and find joy in you. Thank you for, especially for those who labor in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the ministry that you've entrusted to them. Oh, Lord God, I pray that this evening when they put their heads down, they would be encouraged in the Lord their God. Thank you also, Heavenly Father, for the many others who have come. And the question even that was raised, how do I encourage and strengthen the shepherds that you've put over me? And thank you for them, Father, I pray, O oh Lord God. Uh, give them wisdom and uh, give them much courage to carry out this assignment from you. In the name of Jesus, we thank you.